Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen. And, and the way I like to do it on Easter, and maybe you've heard this, maybe you're familiar with this, maybe you're not, but whenever the pastor or the song leader or the whoever says on Easter Sunday morning he is risen, then everyone with joy and excitement is to reply with, he is risen indeed. So I'm going to say it again, he is risen. If I've not had a chance to meet you yet, I'm Alan. I have the joy of being able to be the, the lead pastor here as well as one of the elders. And we are absolutely thrilled that you are worshiping with us today on this Easter Sunday morning. I know many of you are here in the room and there are those that are worshiping online as well. And whichever the case may be, thank you for being here and worshiping with us today. If you're a guest, we would love to be able to connect with you, give you some information about the church and all of that. And so if you could help us out, we would really appreciate it. There's a, a connection card right there in the chair near you if you're here in the building. It looks like this. And you can just fill that out. And when the offering plates are passed later, you don't have to worry about putting anything in there except for that. That would be a help to us so that we can kind of connect with you. Uh, we have had a tremendous week here as a church family as we have been remembering the events of the week, uh, the final week of Jesus' life before he is crucified and resurrected. And so we had a, a phenomenal Good Friday service and we had a, a wonderful uh, sunrise service this morning. And now we've gathered this morning to look to the fact and the truth and the promise and the hope that Jesus is alive and he is just as alive today as he was then as he always has been and always will be and because of his resurrection it makes all the difference in our lives so what I don't want you to do this morning is simply come and say that was cool we were at church the room was full we ate some good pancakes we laughed at a few things we sat through the preachers preaching we we took some pictures with our family and, and by golly when Christmas comes around we'll do it again Let's not think about just the events of this day, but let us understand the power and the significance of the resurrection in our lives, in the here and now, and in the tomorrow, in the next day, and into all eternity. So don't walk out of this place unchanged and unimpacted by the truth of the gospel that Jesus is alive. So we as a church family have been walking through the book of Acts, and we, we took a break from that last week so we could celebrate Palm Sunday. We, we took a break from it today so we can look specifically at the resurrection. But starting next week, we'll be back in the book of Acts. Uh, but I would love for you, if you've got a copy of the worship guide, you can look at the back of it. It's got some notes as we go along. There'll be some notes on the screen as well. Um, and then if you do not have a Bible with you, you can grab one. It should be in a chair beside you, underneath you, somewhere around you. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to take that home with you, that is our gift to you as well. So to start this morning off, I'd like to talk for just a minute about the confidence of young kids. If you, uh, I don't know what your routine is at your house. Uh, it's not our routine right now. We all eat at kind of different times for breakfast. But if you're at a home where you all sit down at breakfast together, can you imagine if all the kids come in and they ask the question, Mom, Dad, what's for breakfast? Now, isn't that a bit presumptuous that, that the parents are actually going to have something for breakfast? I mean, isn't that a big ask of us? No, obviously it's not. Kids can have all the confidence in the world that their family is going to have something there for them to have for breakfast. But as we walk through life, we begin to see that some of the things and some of the people and some of the things that we think bring uh, confidence, assurance, let us down. 
So I hope that at your house, you don't ever look at your kid and go, nope, actually, we don't have anything for breakfast. Good luck, buddy. But as they go through life, they're going to probably run into things where they find out the people, the institutions, even the technology in life will at times let us down. So the, confidence, the question I have for us today is this. Where do you find your confidence? Do you find your confidence in the church? Do you find your confidence in your good works? Do you find your confidence in the fact that you're an American? Do you find your confidence in the fact that you, that you pray a prayer at night? Or do you find your confidence in the hope that is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because everything else will eventually let us down, but our stability in life and our confidence can be found in Jesus Christ and him alone. I don't know about you, but have you noticed that especially over the last two years, that confidence in all that we think is sure in our lives has been slowly or perhaps quickly eroding. And you turn around and nothing and no one do we think we can trust. Uh, I read some, some uh, Gallup polls over the last few years and somewhere between 30% to 40% of Americans think that a clergy person is a trustworthy type person. I hope that you trust me more than 30%, but the reality is we have walked away from things that in the past we've been rely, uh, that we've, we've trusted in and we think that nothing and no one can be trusted any longer except for me and my views and my echo chamber, whatever that chamber may be. The reality is nothing can be trusted fully except Jesus Christ himself. And so we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, and by the way, just feel free, understand that it helps the pastor preach when he has a little feedback, preferably no eggs coming this way, but if you would, feel free to, 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 to encourage me as we go through. Let's look at God's Word together, Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, we're going to walk through a passage of Scripture that the Apostle Paul wrote, and in it we find out that we can have all of our confidence in the resurrection of Jesus. I love the ability, side note, of being able to walk around this morning out there during the sun, sunrise service. I started to say sunset. I was at a microphone that was wired, and I couldn't move, and they said that I did some interesting dance moves. So this morning, I get to move around uh, with this wireless mic. Let's look at the passage together. I'm going to be jumping into the middle of a verse. You may want to kind of go back and read the first couple of verses to get the full context, but I'm going to jump right in the middle of verse 4. Paul says that instead of having confidence in his flesh, he says this in verse 4, Though I myself, Paul says, have reason for confidence in the flesh also. And here's the reason. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And here they are. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the, Jew, sorry, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, Jesus Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So in Paul's story here that he shares about himself, he talks about the transition that he takes from once being the most radically self-confident person there could be, and he even lists the reasons why he could be, to understanding that there's no confidence in those things in, in reality, and the only confidence he has should be placed in Christ. So this morning, wherever you think you do or don't have confidence, make sure that it's clear in your mind that confidence and stability and hope and purpose and meaning can and should be found in Jesus. So here's Paul. Look down in verses 5 and 6. Essentially what Paul is saying is, I am the cream of the crop. Like, there is no better Jew, there's no better Hebrew than myself. Like, I have all the pedigree, I have all the credentials. I'm, I'm, I'm top-of-the-line Jew. In fact, he says in verse 3, or actually verse 4, he says, I myself have reason for this confidence in the flesh. You're like, what does he mean by confidence in the flesh? Like, does he mean, like, physically flesh? No, he's just saying, I have reason to have confidence in myself, in my works, in what I do. And, and I used to have that confidence, and then something changed, and I realized that all of that is rubbish. And that confidence can and should only be found in Christ. But here are the things he listed. I'm not going to read them verbatim again, but in verses 5 and 6, you can follow along with me. And here's what he says. As it relates to the law, like the Old Testament, the Scripture, we obeyed the law meticulously. The law made it clear that a, that a newborn son was to be circumcised. That was a sign of the covenant, that they were a part of the people of Israel. It was not just a medical procedure, but instead it was a religious thing. And, and so as a result of that, they were to do that on the eighth day. And Paul says, that, that happened for me. Like my parents took me, and I was, I was circumcised on the eighth day. So my parents meticulously followed the law. He said, I, I'm a, I was a Pharisee. If you know anything about the Pharisees, they knew the law backwards and forwards. They, they knew the scripture. They had it memorized. They could tell you book, chapter, and verse, if you will, where everything was written in the law. And so he understood the law. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. In fact, the phrase that he uses here is, under the law, I was blameless. Now, now, Paul's not necessarily saying that he's never sinned. He's just saying, as it pertains to the law, I did everything I could to follow it meticulously. If there was a reason for someone to have confidence in themselves, I have every reason. And then he describes that he was from the tribe of Benjamin, which is a little bit confusing. Like, why does he bother to mention that? We don't know exactly why he mentions it, but it could be that Paul, before he started going by the name Paul, was actually named Saul. And perhaps you've heard of the first king of Israel. His name was Saul. Do you know what tribe Saul was from? Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. So there is a possibility of what Paul is saying is, not only am I a Jew, not only do I follow the law, not only was I a Pharisee, but I actually am of the lineage of 
Saul, the great king, although if you know much about Saul, he kind of wasn't so great at the end of his reign, and I was named after him. So there's, there's another reason for him to brag or to be proud. And then he kind of finishes talking about the great zeal that he had, that he had a, an excitement, that he had a commitment to God. Now, granted, that zeal and that commitment to God was a bit misguided. His zeal and enthusiasm and excitement for the Lord actually led him to kill the followers of Jesus before he trusted in Jesus himself. So what Paul does is he lists every reason that he could have had confidence in himself. But when he had an encounter with the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, all of that changed. As I said, we're studying through the book of Acts, and in Acts chapter 9, when we get there, we'll see that Paul has a road to Damascus experience. Perhaps you've heard that phrase and didn't know where that came from. Paul was literally on his way to the city of Damascus. He was on his way to persecute the followers of Jesus when Jesus himself shows up and appears before him and says, Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he is radically changed so that he no longer trusts in himself and begins to trust in Jesus and him alone. And so at that moment, when he has an encounter with, with the risen Christ, his life is flipped upside down. That's how our lives should be whenever we experience a, a, a relationship with Jesus Christ. I want you to look down in verse 8. In verse 8, he says, All of these things that I once took confidence in, I now see it as rubbish. Verse 8, he says, for his sake, Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, including those pedigree items. And he says, I've, I've, uh, I've, counted, I've lost all these things and count them as rubbish. Can I tell you for just a second what the word rubbish means? The word rubbish in Greek is skubala. I'm going to keep it a PG-13 version in here. But scubala, at the very least, means garbage and worthless. But it's in its more extreme use, it means dung, or maybe even a stronger word than that. You following with me? You tracking with me? What Paul says is, all of this stuff that I thought was so important, when I met Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, I realized it's complete garbage and worthless and useless compared to Christ. I wonder in our lives, what scubala do we put before Jesus Christ? Now what Paul is not saying is it was wrong for him to have been raised in a strong Jewish household. What Paul was not saying is it's wrong to have a loving family. What Paul is not saying is it's wrong to have a bank account. He's not saying get rid of all of those things, but in a comparison game, all of this is worthless and Christ is everything. And if we have Christ, it doesn't matter what else we do or don't have. And if we have all this junk and nothing of Jesus, then we are completely lost and hopeless. And so my question for us this morning is, as we came in the door, where is our confidence found? Is our confidence found in our own good works or is our confidence found in the risen Lord? Is our confidence found in, in the fact that we come to church when it's convenient, or is our confidence found in that Jesus Christ is the one that can forgive us of our sins? And so here's Paul. He's made this realization that his confidence is not in the flesh, it's in Jesus. 
As he kind of talks about this gain-loss thing, it reminds me of a ledger. And so I want to look at a picture of a ledger book. And what Paul is saying is everything else that I used to have on my chart that said, this is gain, this is good, this is my pedigree, this is who I am, this is what I've done, all of those things transferred and went over to the loss column. And, and what the reality is, the only thing that even matters is Christ. That Christ is gain and everything else compared to Christ is loss. I guarantee it that for most of us, as we walk through the week, we could not have a similar ledger book because we still try to put things over in the gain column in addition to Christ. Like, I've got Jesus plus. I've got Jesus plus that. No, the reality is it doesn't matter what else is in that column because compared to Christ, it all goes to the other side of the ledger. And so that's what Paul is saying. So I want you to look at your notes now. On the notes it says, all that matters in life is. If everything else is lost and, and, and Jesus is the only thing that's gained, let's consider what matters in life. And so you'll see it. It's going to walk us through verses 8 through 10 essentially. All that matters in life is first gaining Christ. Gaining Christ. Look down at 8. He says he counts everything else as lost. He talks about the rubbish, the scubula, and then he says, in order. The reason I count that as lost is because in order that I may gain Christ. The way to gain Christ is to see that everything else doesn't really matter. For far too long, Paul had walked through life trying to work his way to God. For far too long, Paul had walked through his life trying to prove to God that he was worth something. Hey, hey God, look at me. Like, look at me. I, I do all the things. I follow all the rules. I, I do the right things. I go to church. I act right, and surely that makes me good with you. And now Paul realizes all of that is lost. How do you and I do that? Like, I don't think any of us, if we were listing all the things we could have confidence in, or, I mean, I'm a guy, but I'm still not going to say I was circumcised on the eighth day. That doesn't do much for me. I'm, I'm of the people of Israel. I'm not even from Israel. I'm not a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm, I'm not a Pharisee. Like, what am I going to list that makes me think I'm good with God? Here are some things that I could potentially list, and maybe you could too. But I say that as I list these things, my confidence shouldn't even be in these things. But, but I'm a conservative American I was raised in church. I do all the things at church. I mean, I was at Good Friday service. I even came at 6.30, like to be at the sunrise service. I ate some pancakes today. I came here. I'm, I'm going to serve. I'm going to do all the things at church. That, that makes me good with God. I've, I've got good morals. I, I follow all the rules. Like I am literally Alan Pittman for most part, is a rule follower. Like, if it's there, you're supposed to do it. That makes me good, right? Like, I'm a good little boy because I follow all the rules. I didn't win this award. I didn't have Awana at my church, but maybe some of you, I won the Timothy Award in Awana. That makes me good with God, right? There are others that say, well, I don't really believe in this Jesus guy. Like, I don't really believe in the church stuff, but I do have beliefs, and I sincerely hold to them, and I, I have zeal for them. I have excitement for them, and these beliefs that I have, I, I'm, I'm sincere about them. Surely those are the things that we can have confidence in. But the reality is this. To gain Christ, if that's the goal we should have, to gain Christ does not mean I work to gain him. It doesn't mean that I earn him. Rather, to gain Christ means I receive his free gift that he offers to me. 
And it all starts because of his resurrection. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Paul wrote this as well. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Perhaps you're familiar with these verses, 8 and 9. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And both grace and faith, both of them, is not of your own doing. Rather, they're the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. We can't earn our way to God. We can't please God and therefore be made right with him. So how can a person be made right with God? Here we are on Easter Sunday. We've got to make sure that we're clear about this. All throughout Scripture, we're taught what it means to be at right standing with God, how to be made right with God. And, and you may want to jot this verse down. I'm not going to uh, read it from the text, but I'll be quoting it, and that is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It starts in verse 3 and follows through, and it tells us what the gospel is. Here's what the good news is. The good news that brings salvation, the way that we can gain Christ is if we understand first and foremost that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. All of us, 100% of us, are sinners. We're not just people who make mistakes occasionally. Like we're not just less than perfect. We're not just okay people. We are worthless sinners without Jesus. So what is a sin? A sin is anything that we do that's against the will of God. It could be saying yes to God when he's telling us no. It could be telling God no when he's telling us yes. It could be committing sin that is clearly wrong against Scripture, and it could be not doing the things that he positively asks of us. Sin is basically saying, I'm in charge of my life. Like my confidence is found in who I am and what I decide to do. Now you may not say that out loud, you may not even think those exact words, but that is the, the, the posture of sin. So scripture says all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are good with God because all of us have sinned. Scripture goes on to tell us that our sin deserves death and that we for all eternity are separated from a holy, perfect God. But we're reminded, as I said just a moment ago from 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins and it was in accordance with the Scriptures. It was God's plan all along. Because although you and I deserve death for our sins, Jesus died on our behalf. Jesus was crucified. He wasn't guilty of anything. He was innocent, and yet he was crucified for our sins. So the first thing we need to understand is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He truly was dead. He was buried, Scripture tells us. He was put in a tomb. On Saturday, it was a most horrible day because the disciples knew that he was dead, thought he was dead to stay, didn't know what was about to come on Sunday. Jesus truly died for our sins. But the wonderful good news is he didn't stay in the tomb. Jesus is alive. 
And on the third day, it says that he was raised from the dead, and it was in accordance with the scriptures. So not only did it happen, it was prophesied thousands and hundreds of years before it took place. So we know with confidence because it happened and God's word said it would happen. Therefore, that is what brings us assurance of salvation. If I acknowledge that I'm a sinner, that I can't do it on my own, if I repent of my sins and I come to him and accept his free gift of grace through faith in his name and his name alone. There's no other name under heaven by which man must be saved other than the name Jesus. So my question for you is, have you believed this gospel? There are too many denominations and churches and people out there that they think that you have to work your way and take steps towards heaven and prove to God that you are worthy of his love. None of us are worthy of his love. He chooses to freely give it to us if we'll accept Jesus as our Savior. So my question is, have you accepted that salvation? If you haven't, don't walk out this door and go, boy, that was a great service. Like We're reminded that Jesus is the hope of the world. No, he's not your hope if you've not placed your faith and your trust in him. But this morning, you can do that. You can do that there at your seat. You can do that right now. You don't have to wait. Or you can come at the end of the service, and I would love to chat with you what it means to say yes to Jesus and trust in him. What it means to gain Jesus. Do you know what keeps us from trusting in that promise? That we can receive this free gift from Jesus. That we can gain him not by what we do. Here's the problem. All too often it's the difference of two letters. And maybe you've heard it before. Preachers have used it for years. Our confidence, if we're not careful, can be all about what I can do. D-O. Instead of what Christ has done. D-O-N-E. It's a done deal. Like Jesus did the work, trust in him. I can't do it on my own. So all that matters in life is gaining Christ. The second thing, all that matters in life is being found in him. Look back in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, sorry, chapter 3. Verse 9 says this. Not only do I want to gain Christ, he says at the beginning of 9, to be found in him. And he describes what it means to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. What does it mean to be found in Jesus? The word found here simply means to prove to be, or to be shown to be, or to turn out to be. Like, that is reality. I'm, I'm found in Christ, and it truly is the case. I have gained him in a relationship with him, and I can be found in him, to be in him. It involves trusting in him. It's this picture of taking refuge in Christ, trusting in him and not ourselves. To be found in Christ means my confidence of salvation is not in my own doings, being found in Christ means I've trusted in him and I take refuge in him. Paul says in verse 9 here that it's not righteousness of our own. What does the word righteousness mean? Righteousness simply means to, be have, to have right standing with God. And to stand before God, to be free of the guilt of our sin, to experience forgiveness of our sins is not based on anything that I do. My right standing with God has everything to do with what he has done for me. To be found in him means that I trust in him instead of trusting in me. See, all of our efforts fall short. 
Don't put confidence in your flesh. You will let yourself down. Put no confidence in the flesh. Even as I say that, I realize this. Some of us in this room, we're like, dude, I have no problem. I'm not putting confidence in the flesh. I think I'm a pretty crummy person. In fact, I don't even think God could love me. Like, I'm the lowest of low. I'm crawling on the ground. When it comes to self-confidence, there can be two extremes, and both of them are still trusting in your confidence in yourself, thinking either I'm so good God doesn't even need my help, or I'm so bad God couldn't even help me at all. Neither one of those are the right approaches. Because the truth of the matter is, none of us are so despicable that we're the worst person in the world. And at the same time, the truth of the matter is, none of us are so all that together, right? Every one of us. It's not a totem pole, a competition. All of us are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. So don't take confidence in your flesh. Be found in him means to take confidence in him. I'm reminded of this passage from Matthew. In Matthew chapter 7, here's what Jesus says one day. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Pretty scary verses. I don't want to, like, scare you or anything, but I'm just simply saying, don't put confidence in yourselves. It's not what we do for God that brings salvation. It's what Christ has done on our behalf. See, righteousness is only found through faith in Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Let me turn to that. Here's what it says. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The only way that we have righteousness in us is not our own righteousness, but rather it's the righteousness of Christ that is imputed or placed upon us based on our faith and our trust in him. To be found in him means that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sinfulness because Christ's righteousness has been placed upon us based on our faith in him. So my question for you is this. Does your life demonstrate a desire to be found in who you are and what you've done? Or does your life demonstrate a desire to be found in Christ? You're going to be found in something. You're going to either be found in doing it your way, which will get you nowhere, or you can be found in Christ, which gives you righteousness based on what he's done on your behalf. So we see on our notes that all that matters in life is gaining Christ, being found in him, and ultimately knowing him there on your notes. Verse 10, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 says this. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. When Paul says here that he wants to know Christ, this is not simply knowing about Jesus, but rather it's knowing Jesus intimately. 
pretty much all of us, even if you have never been to church before, even if you've never heard the name Jesus before, now that you've sat in here, unless you've totally zoned out, you have heard me talk about Jesus. And so you know about Jesus at the bare minimum, right? But to, for Paul to say that all that matters in life is knowing Jesus, it's not knowing about him, not being able to spit out the facts, okay, he was born of a virgin, he was born in Bethlehem, he was raised, he walked around for three years, he taught his disciples, he did some cool things, he, he died and was buried and he rose again. Like, knowing the facts about Jesus is a good thing, but knowing Jesus is not simply knowing the facts, but rather it's an intimate, personal knowledge of Jesus. It's knowing him personally having a relationship with him. John says it this way in his gospel, John 17, 3, or actually Jesus says it, John recorded, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The only way to eternal life is knowing Jesus. The only way to know Jesus is to trust in his finished work on the cross and in his resurrection. Knowing Jesus is not knowing all the Bible stories. Knowing Jesus is to know him personally. I find it interesting. What does Paul say here? Paul says, I've counted all for loss in order that I may know him. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him. You see, whenever we know Jesus, we will want to know him better and better and better and better. At this point, Paul had known Jesus for about 30 years. It had been about 30 years. It was in the early 30s that he would have met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was writing this in the early 60s, and so it was about 30 years later when he's writing this. And even after 30 years of Paul having his salvation, he wants to know Jesus more and more and more. My question to us is this. Have you trusted in Jesus for your salvation and now you've walked through the rest of life and you're like, I'm just kind of waiting, I'm kind of in a holding pattern until I die and then I'll go to heaven? Oh yeah, back there 30 years ago I got saved. I'm just ready, I'm just going to kind of walk through life. I'm going to be a good moral person. But no, we should be in a pursuit of knowing Jesus more and more and more each day. Paul made it his major ambition in life to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, that should be our motivation as well. Now, the interesting thing is this. All of that sounds wonderful, right? Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. You're like, yes, sir, sign me up for that. I want to know Jesus' resurrection. I don't know about the rest of the verse. Would you, would you read the rest of the verse with me? Look, look at it. He says, I, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Oh, my goodness. And may share his sufferings. Oh, that doesn't sound so good. Becoming like him in his death? No, 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 I don't want that one either. The reality is this. To know Jesus means that we share with him the things that he experienced. The word share here that says share his sufferings is actually the word koinonia. Do you know the word koinonia? It carries with it the idea of fellowship or, or, or community or being a part of an association with intimately we are to know suffering when we know Jesus. See, those who follow Jesus will encounter suffering for his sake all along the way. I know what some of you are thinking. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. This is Easter. It's supposed to be a feel-good service, right? Like, you're not supposed to tell me suffering's on the way. Like, why am I going to sign up to follow Jesus if there is suffering too? The problem is, all too often, we preach an easy believism, and we don't describe the whole picture. 
to follow Jesus, not just say, give me my get out of hell free card. Like, I don't want to go to hell when I die, so I got the hell scared out of me and I'm going to go to heaven one day. No, the reality is we need to understand that to, to know Jesus is easy in the sense that we don't do anything for it, but it's a lifetime of following Jesus. See, whenever Jesus called his disciples, he didn't say, come on, boys, hang out with me for a while. He said, come, follow me. And it wasn't because they didn't have a GPS on their phone. They better follow Jesus. No, he meant literally follow me all the way to the cross. So are you and I so excited about the power of his resurrection, which we should be, are we overlooking the fact that Paul says that we should also share in his suffering and become like him in his death? Become like him is, is, a, is a compound word in the Greek, and it means to be transformed into something, to be made into something. So knowing Jesus means I'm transformed to be more and more and more like him. Does your life look different today than it did the day you got saved? All too often somebody says, hey, would you tell me your testimony? We go, well, yeah, I was, let me tell you, I was eight years old at BBS, and uh, the preacher talked about salvation, and, and I got baptized, and um, then my wife and I got married uh, uh, 10 years later, and now we've had six kids, and I'm 72. Like, that's the end of the story. No, like, salvation is the beginning. Like, conversion is the beginning, and we should be growing more and more like Jesus every day. All right? So are we seeking to know Jesus? Is the knowledge of his suffering and his death the kind of knowledge of Christ that we want? Would we be willing to face persecution or even death for his sake? I didn't watch the whole video, but I remember, what was it, almost 10 years ago. It's happened time and time again. I'm thinking of a particular video where there were 21 followers of Jesus in northern Africa. And they were caped and covered up and they were taken to a beach. I don't know if you remember this video or not, but they were taken to a beach and they were put down on their, their knees and they were told to deny Jesus or they would lose their head. And to a T, all 21 of them said yes to Jesus. I never saw the remainder of the video. I just saw when they were walked up and kneeling there at the beach. Would you and I be willing to stand up for Christ no matter the cost? I'm not asking you to go looking for trouble. I'm asking, do we want to know Jesus so intimately that we're willing to know his suffering and his death? The way that we really know Jesus is if we know him all the way around. Not just the power of his resurrection, but also in his suffering and his death. But the reality is if we know him in his suffering and his death, then that means that one day we'll experience that resurrection as well, right? Look at verse 11. I want to be clear what it's saying and what it's not saying. In the ESV, Paul says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. If you read that in English, it's almost like Paul is crossing his fingers. And goes, please, God, please, may I do something to get, no, what he's saying here is not hopeful, wishful. I don't know if I really have salvation. Rather, what Paul is saying is humility. He knows his salvation is coming. He knows his resurrection is coming. And it's not based on him, but it's based on Jesus. And so that's what he means, a show of humility here. We can and we will know the power of his resurrection in the here and the now and in the future when we, raise, when we are raised to be with him in heaven. Here's what I want to share with you. It's found in Ephesians. I know I've looked at several verses today, but it just I think these things kind of highlight what Paul is saying in Philippians. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to jump into verses 19 and 20. 
This is a prayer. If you wanted to go back to 15, you can read it and see where it starts. And he's basically just praying for different things. And then when it gets to 19 and 20, he prays that we would know the power of the resurrection and experience it. Here's what it says. That I would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, resurrection power, toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And so whenever Paul says in Philippians 2 that he wants to know the power of his resurrection, the word power is dunamis, which is like dynamite, which is huge. And he's saying just that power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you in your life in the here and now. And all too often we walk into church, all too often we walk into conversations with our friends, all too often we walk into a conversation and talk about Jesus with someone, we just kind of politely, quietly go, um, can I, um, if it's not a bother, can I, um, I don't know, can I tell you about, gee, come to church with me, and then we run away, like, right? <laughs> all too often we go through the crumb, crummy parts of life relationship issues, financial issues, divorce, uh, death, uh, frustrations, relationship issues, and we forget that the very power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is alive and well within us that have trusted in Jesus because the Holy Spirit resides in us, and we forget that all the time. As we walk through the book of Acts, if you get nothing else from it, see over and over again the power of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And that power of the Holy Spirit in your life is the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. Doesn't make you Jesus. Doesn't even get close to making you Jesus. But as you trust in him, you receive his power in your life. So to know Jesus means that we know him in his suffering. To know Jesus means that we know him in his death. To know Jesus means that we know him in his resurrection. And my question for you is this. If Paul's supreme ambition in life was to know Jesus, is that yours? Do you want to know Jesus in that kind of way? Let me walk you through three theological terms. Maybe you've heard before, maybe you haven't. But what does it mean to know Jesus at each step of the way? Salvation can be described with three different words, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification means the moment in time where you've trusted in Jesus and you are made right with God. You are justified before God because of what Christ did for you. So to experience that, you have to know Jesus. That's where salvation comes. But then, as I said, that's not the ending point. That's the starting point. Like, I'm living my life now, and God wants to make me more and more like him, which is sanctification, the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. The only way I can become more and more like Jesus is if I know him. And then, guys, one day, one day when this life is over, that if we've placed our faith and our trust in Jesus, we get to be in God's presence, in the throne room with God, in the very presence with Jesus, and then we know him for who he is. Because right now we're looking through a, 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 a dim, lit uh, mirror. We can't see him completely. But the reality is we will be in his presence and sin will be out the door and no more. And so that's glorification. We are to know Jesus all throughout the process. But here's the deal. The only way to know Jesus is because of the power of the resurrection. I'm not asking, could you do a flannel board description of the resurrection? I'm saying, have you experienced the power of salvation in your life? 
based on the confidence that Jesus is who he says he is, that he really did die for our sins, that he really did raise from the dead? Have you placed your sins at his feet and trusted in him and in him alone? Our church is called Living Hope. And if you're a part of our church family, I sure hope you know why we are called Living Hope. If you're not a part of our church family, maybe you're wondering, like, I've never heard of a church called Living Hope. Why is it called that? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Peter, one of the disciples, wrote a couple of books. One of them is called First Peter. Here's what First uh, Peter, there we go, First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Where's this living hope from? It says, we are born to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we are born to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, is kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have a living hope, and that living hope is Jesus because he's not in the grave. He's alive forevermore. And are we going to honor and acknowledge him and worship him? And as fun as it is to come to church, and for some of us, I know some of y'all, y'all are like kind of quiet people, but you, if you've not seen it about me, I'm a loud person. And as fun as it is to shout those things at church, the real question is when the rubber meets the road on Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday night, are we saying the same thing? Now, I'm not doing this guilt trip thing, and I'm not doing this comparison exactly, but here's the deal. I have been in this little place, I don't know if you've heard of it or before or not, it's down the road, it's, a, I don't know, three miles away, it's a little field, and it's got a guy's name on the front of it, it's Kyle, Kyle Field, I don't know if you've heard of it, and there's about 80,000 people that sometimes gather there in the fall. I've been at a game there, and there's just a smidge of excitement there's just a tad bit of enthusiasm. There's just a few loud voices. I'm not saying that if you yell at a football game, you must yell at a church service. I'm just asking, what's going on internally? Like, you're pumped about that game, and you're excited, and then sometimes when we come to church, it's like, ho-hum, it's Sunday, I'm supposed to be here. No, we serve a risen Savior. And does that matter to us? You see, Easter literally changes everything. Don't leave here unchanged. Don't leave here just having a good time. Don't leave here just having a full belly after the pancakes. Leave here changed by the resurrection. So here's three things. And I'm going to tie it right back into gaining Christ, being found in him, and knowing him. Here's three things that you could do. And you may even want to jot it down on one of your, the connection card and let us know the spiritual decision you're making. Here's the first thing you may do. Some of you need to gain Christ. What I mean by that is some of us need to examine our lives. I said this question a moment ago. I'm going to say it again. Examine our lives and do we have scubula? Do we have rubbish? Do we have things that are really worthless that we have placed above Christ? And if that's the case, we need to come and repent of that and say, Christ, you are first in my life. To gain Christ means that we realize everything else is lost. The second step you could take is this, being found in him. 
Have you trusted in him for salvation? Have you trusted in him for salvation? And then have you followed up with baptism? I've got great news. Next Sunday morning at the service, we're having a baptism. And if you've said yes to Jesus for salvation, then the, one of the first steps of obedience should ideally be baptism. And if you're at least interested in hearing more about it, we would love to tell you about it. Maybe the next step you need to take is to trust in Jesus for salvation, or if you've already done that, trust in him for baptism. And then the third thing, knowing him. Do you know him, not only in his resurrection, but do you know him in his suffering? Are you walking in that resurrection power? How can we know Jesus? Study God's word. How can we know Jesus? Pray. How, how can we know Jesus? Be with our church family. I, I can't tell you how exciting it's been Thursday, I mean, sorry, Friday, I don't know the days of the week, Friday and this morning, and, and see God's family gather in this building together. There's nothing magical about this building. There's something about the people of God that make up this church family as God empowers us through our conversations with each other that we're emboldened to go out and be his witnesses around the world. So we need church family to know God. You see, Easter celebrates the fact that Jesus is alive and that changes everything. So my question for you is this. How will your life be different because of the resurrection? All kinds of opportunities where we can walk through with you. Like I said, we're having baptism next week. We're having a new membership class next week. If you're not a member of the church and you want information about that, we'd love to sign you up for that class. If you just want to jump in a hope group, if you want to be a part of a discipleship class, if you just want to have a, an appointment with one of the staff or the elders, we want to walk with you and help you see the power of the resurrection, and we want to do that collectively as the people of God. I'm going to lead us in prayer. At the end of the prayer, we're going to have the worship team back up here with us, and we're going to sing a couple of songs. And if you, um, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask everybody just to kind of stay tight at your seats here, because I want God to do his work in our lives. And I don't want to rush out the door. I don't want to think about the ham that's at the house. I don't want us to think about whatever the next agenda is. The agenda on the table is for us to hear from God, to hear his Holy Spirit to speak to us and saying yes to him, whatever that means, in order that our lives will be different and changed because of the truth of the gospel of the risen Jesus Christ, the Lord. Let me pray for us.